there and welcome to eMedCast. My name is Mary Ryan and I'm a second year medical student here at OHSU. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Brittany Arnold, an emergency medicine physician about all things snakes, from initial management of a bite in the field to hospital care. Let's dive in. So hi, Dr. Arnold. Would you mind telling me just a little bit about yourself and your training? Sure, yeah. So I grew up uh, in the Seattle area, the Seattle suburbs, and then moved down to Portland back in 2003 for undergrad. There I studied uh, biology, had minors in German and psychology. Hmm. After that, I took uh, about four years between undergrad and med school, and I took a year-long graduate certificate course in biomedical ethics, which I think uh, really well prepared me for some aspects of uh, medical practice, for sure. Um, And then the next three years worked part-time in general surgery research and also at a clinic for homeless youth, Um, also with um, some different experiences throughout there. Went to Peru um, on a couple medical missions as well with some Portland-based nonprofits before finally uh, going to med school at OHSU, followed by residency at OHSU as well in emergency medicine, um, which was a great experience. And now I work in the community here in Portland. I've been out in practice for about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I also work up at Mount Hood, up at Mount Hood Meadows in the Mountain Emergency Services Clinic. Oh, super cool. So what first got you interested in snakes and snake envenomation? Yeah, so I think, you know, the, the snake envenomation kind of falls under the umbrella of wilderness medicine. And I'm definitely interested in wilderness medicine because I think it marries uh, my two loves of, you know, medicine inside the hospital and my activities outside the hospital. Mm-hmm. Growing up in the Northwest, I did a lot of skiing, hiking, backpacking, that sort of thing growing up. So being able to be prepared when I am in any sort of dangerous situations or just be prepared in general when I go out doing these activities, which can um, just by nature of the activity be dangerous in and of themselves, mm-hmm. I feel I feel a lot better. So, you know, that's my kind of interest in wilderness medicine in general. And I think my, you know, interest in snake bites in particular was a little bit more of a circuitous route when I was younger. In the summer times, I used to go to horse camp and mm-hmm. we would do cattle herding on horseback, and there would be a lot of uh, interactions with rattlesnakes there in eastern Washington. Luckily, uh-huh. uh, no horses got bit. I never got bit uh-huh. while, while I was out there, but we would definitely run into them a lot. And then, you know, just later on in life, I would go hiking in eastern Oregon, eastern Washington, or even most recently, I was down backpacking in Sequoia National Park and oh, yeah. came upon a rattlesnake there. Uh-huh. So I feel like it's definitely applicable to, you know, my life outside, and I just had some interest in wanting to know a little bit more about them. And uh, in residency, we go through a toxicology rotation here at OHSU, and you have to pick a topic for your final presentation, your final research project. And so I thought that would be kind of an opportune time to, to do that, to look a little bit more into that. So Cool. Yeah. So you mentioned all these different snakes you've seen. So backpacking, you saw certain kinds of snake. it's snakes. In Sequoia National Park, you saw different kinds of snakes. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about the scope of snake bites in the U.S.? So where geographically do snake bites tend to occur? And do physicians in different geographic areas need to worry about different species of snakes? Sure, yeah, that's a great question. So in the US, there is at least one venomous snake found in every contiguous United States. So definitely in the lower 48, every state will, every state will have its own snake to speak of. Yeah. There's about 20 species of different venomous snakes throughout the US. Um, the bites, though, are a little bit less uh, evenly distributed across the states. They tend to happen in drier, warmer climates. Mm-hmm. So you see them in Southern California, Arizona, Texas, that sort of thing, yeah. more so than the northern states, even though we do have rattlesnakes here in Oregon. 
Um, and just thinking, you know, collectively about all the snakes we have here, pit vipers are definitely the most common um, type of snake in the U.S., and therefore they're the most common type of bite across the board. They compromise about 95% of all the documented bites. And these include rattlesnakes, and rattlesnakes can be found across the U.S. And then additionally, there's cottonmouths or uh, water moccasins, maybe another name for them. They're in the southeast, and copperheads are more common in eastern states. Okay. All those are pit vipers. And here in Oregon, we only have two types of venomous snakes. Both of those are pit vipers, the northern Pacific rattlesnake and then the Great Basin rattlesnake as okay. well. So is there a typical snake bite, snake bite scenario? Do victims tend to be hikers like me when I was hiking the PCT? Um, are they farmers or are they just people going about going out and about on their business? Yeah. So interestingly, only 2% of bites occur with people that actually work outside, like mm -hmm. farmers, landscapers. Um, the most common profession is actually oil field workers that happen on the job. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. So the other major groups uh, that sustain bites are largely either individuals that are taunting snakes, you know, people that yeah. see one on the trail and they try and pick it up with a stick or they're gotcha. um, sometimes actually trying to do, do good and move it off the trail to help others. Yeah, and then they um, get a bite for their good deeds. End up getting bite, <laughs> yep, get, getting bit. Um, and then the other, you know, major category is just people that live in the southern states and they're okay. like out gardening yeah. or kind of going about their lives, mostly in the spring, summer, early fall months. Um, recreationalists are a big chunk of the bites too, but mm -hmm. less so than kind of the other two categories. Gotcha. Yeah. Interesting. And just to give you some numbers, you know, the CDC annual incidence uh, in the U.S. is about three to four bites per every 100,000 people. That's 7,000 to 8,000 per year. Okay. 85% of which are male. Oh. Yeah. So draw your own conclusions. Um, and then there's about five deaths per year now. And this is uh, keeping in mind that we have antivenom to treat this. And okay. most of the time the deaths, unfortunately, are in children. And that's just because of the mm -hmm. venom to body, ratio. you know, body size ratio. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and again, most occur in the summer months, kind of as we were talking about, and on the hands or lower extremities, because you're either walking or you're either trying to touch the rattlesnake, basically, yeah. when you get bit. Yeah. So could you walk me through basically what would happen? Let's say that I'm hiking, I'm out hiking, and I'm just jamming out to some great tunes, and I'm just not paying attention at all. And before I know it, I just feel a stinging pain on my ankle, and I see a snake slithering off on the trail. What can you kind of walk me through next steps? What should I do? Like, what should I expect? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. So... Definitely, you know, as you as you probably know, snakes have fangs, and so you'll feel a little bit of a sting at the bite side, but from what I've heard, I've never been personally bit, um, okay. you know, knock on wood. <laughs> from what I've what I've heard, this, the bite itself is not particularly painful. Okay, it feels like a little bit of a sting. Mm -hmm. You'll probably notice some puncture wounds at the site, and if you're lucky, that's the only symptoms that you'll have, because with pit vipers in particular, 25% of the bites are dry bites. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, meaning that they have no venom in them whatsoever. So you have a one in four chance that you may not actually encounter any sort of symptoms from any venom um, at all. So hopefully that's the case for you. Um, but other things that you might notice if you did uh, have an envenomation, just uh, locally around the area, you'll start to experience more pain. The venom itself causes um, some cell disruption and cytotoxic effects, which can cause pain in the area. Mm -hmm. And then over the next minutes to hours, normally in about 30 minutes or so, you'll start to notice some spreading redness of the area, some swelling, some ecchymoses or bruising. You may get some hemorrhagic blebs, so blistering of the area. Okay. Um, and then, you know, if things are, if things get pretty bad, they can lead to tissue necrosis in that area too. That's a little bit of a delayed finding. Okay. 
And so those are things you might notice right at the area, you know, on your ankle or something where you got bit. Gotcha. And then generalized, you may have sort of a metallic taste in your mouth. You may just start to feel like things are wrong. You know, you may start to feel diaphoretic or sweaty, lightheaded. You might have some nausea, vomiting. Some people are actually allergic to snake venom, so it can present similar to an anaphylactoid reaction, say, you know, if you were allergic to a bee sting. Mm -hmm. Um, So that just adds insult to injury there. Um, And then the venom itself, the way it works is that it's cytotoxic and hemotoxic, so um, it disrupts cells and it disrupts uh, components of the blood. So you'd start to notice things that go along with that. So hypotension from the basement membranes getting interrupted in your capillary beds. Mm -hmm. You know, you have water leaking out of your capillaries. Your blood pressure goes down. Um, You may get some pulmonary edema through the same processes, water leaking into your lungs through the alveoli, through those capillary beds. And then if things are bad enough, um, you could lead to cardiovascular collapse, um, cardiac arrest, chest pain, things like that. Mm. Um, but again, that's a little bit more of a delayed finding rather than an, an immediate symptom that you have. Um, so those are all symptoms of pit vipers, which again are the most common types uh-huh. of bites that we'd have here in the States. But, you know, the, the other four to five percent of bites that we encounter here are coral snakes. And those are found largely in the south to southwest. Okay. And those can actually have some neurotoxic effects. Hmm. So if you get bit by a coral snake, then you could have things like ptosis, some muscle fasciculations, Mm -hmm. feel weakness uh, in your trunk or your extremities, and that can eventually lead to some diaphragmatic weakness and some difficulty breathing as well. Yeah, so less likely to encounter that that type of scenario, Mm -hmm. yeah, Um, but it could happen. Mm. So essentially, let's say that I have this bite. What are some things that I should do in the moment? Should I... You know, they sell those snake. I know they sell those snake bait mm-hmm. bite kits. I've seen those in stores. What are your thoughts about those things? What should I do right after a bite? Yeah, so the snake yeah. bite kits, you know, those are pretty fun to to play with. My dad actually had one of those when we were growing up. And, oh, no way. Yeah, part of you know our camping kits, and essentially you should keep those as you know a souvenir, but don't use any part of that. Gotcha. Um, so the main uh, components that they have in those kits are. A suction cup, a tourniquet, and a small blade or a scalpel. Yeah. So the suction cup, that can cause some local tissue damage and worsening necrosis. The blade, um, so the venom, the, the way that the venom is kind of impregnated into the skin is it goes through the fangs into the subcutaneous tissue into a little pool. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully the snake didn't hit a major vessel and it's just kind of hanging out in the subcutaneous tissue or the fat and will take some time to get absorbed. But if you start going at that with a small blade, then you can introduce that into the circulatory system, which actually would worsen the envenomation for you or make it go quicker. Um, And then the tourniquet, that just uh, hasn't really been shown to decrease the spread of the venom and can cause some local tissue damage, especially if you leave it on for 20 minutes or more. So that should be avoided. So those are all the things you shouldn't do. Yeah. But things that you should do are definitely, you know, first and foremost, get away from the snake because... Snakes can bite multiple times, and they can give venom each time, even in rapid succession. Oh, wow. Yeah, so first thing to do is definitely remove yourself from the dangerous situation. And then after you've gotten yourself to a place of safety, you want to, you know, this is uh, somewhat um, theoretical, but you could let the wound bleed for 10 to 15 seconds um, just to maybe let some of that venom ooze out. Um, and then lower the extremity or keep it at least uh, at or below the level of your heart to okay. help prevent venous return or lymphatic return. 
because the quicker that goes back to your central circulatory system, then the quicker the venom circulates. Mm. Um, so if it's in your arm, definitely keep it either at or below the level of your heart. Then you'd want to wrap the extremity, and we can talk a little bit more about that too. Uh, immobilize it, preferably immobilize your whole body if you can, and then stay stay warm. You know, with any sort of trauma, you want to make sure you stay warm if you're exposed to the elements. And the interesting part about the wrapping, um, just to go into that a little bit more. Yeah. So this uh, technique was originated in Australia in the 1970s. Uh -huh. It's called the pressure immobilization technique. And ideally, you want to wrap the extremity, whatever, you know, arm, leg, whatever got bit um, at a pressure that's about the same as diastolic pressure. Okay. If you can imagine, you know, what the blood pressure cuff lets go, mm -hmm. like whatever that pressure may be, which is kind of like a gentle squeeze on your arm, wrap the extremity distally to proximally with that amount of light pressure, about the same as you might wrap a sprained ankle or something like that. And the idea behind that is to slowly close the lymphatic vessels, which is how the venom would travel to help prevent venom from moving out of that little pool, that little collection that we talked about, and enter into your central nervous or central circulatory system, excuse me. So studies that have looked at this have actually kind of measured the time that um, you know, certain dyes or certain metals in the, in the lab have mm -hmm. taken to go from the subcutaneous tissue to the central um, circulatory system. And in subjects that did have their extremities wrapped, they had about two and a half hours um, before the lymphatic return showed um, levels of technetium, which was the uh, radioactive isotope they used in the bloodstream, the central bloodstream, um, versus the control group, which was only an hour. So again, oh. that was two and a half hours versus one hour yeah, um, wrapping versus not wrapping. And so, in some of those scenarios when you're really out there and there might be a long time before you can get out of there if you're remote, you know, right. that definitely buys you some time. Yeah, so if you can, you know, wrap your leg, if you got bit on the, on the ankle like you were mm -hmm. talking about, that would be probably the better thing to do than not. Okay. But interestingly, so those numbers are only applicable if you're not moving. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. so if you are moving... The time it takes for that venom or the technetium to reach your central circulatory system is 10 minutes, and that's across the board. Wow. So, yeah, okay. wrapped or not wrapped. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so if I need to self-evacuate, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe I should just try to get out there as quick as I can. That's true, and okay. that's what really, you know, complicates this a little bit yeah. is if you're out somewhere by yourself, you're yeah. far away from a trailhead, you don't have cell service, mm -hmm. um, the best bet you have is to just start walking out of there gotcha. to try and go get help. Because um, the longer you sit there, the more venom's going to circulate. Yeah. Um, but if you're with friends, if you have some method to wrap your extremity, if they could carry you out, mm -hmm. then that would be better to keep your heart rate low, mm -hmm. um, to try and keep your limb and your whole body immobilized if you can. Okay. Yeah. Wow, so you also want to keep your heart rate down. Try not to panic, even though you've just been bitten by a rattlesnake. Yeah, <laughs> easier said than done. Absolutely. So let's say that my friends are incredible. They get me out of there, and now I'm in the emergency department. Could you walk me through sort of the initial steps or the initial management in the emergency department? Right. So your friends did a great job. Mm -hmm. They've wrapped your leg. They've carried you in. Yep. You're doing okay. Um, so the first thing that I look at with this particular patient and with any type of patient is to check the ABCs, and okay. you'll hear that a lot with all emergency providers, airway, breathing, circulation. Mm -hmm. And the airway is normally not so much of a big deal with rattlesnake envenomations or, or any snake envenomations unless they happen on the face or the neck. Um, there have been a couple case reports of people putting snakes in their mouth, their oh tongue gets bit. Yeah. So as you can imagine, if your tongue is swelling up or your neck is swelling up, 
um, then that's impending airway compromise. So we may have to intubate those people, but normally we don't have to intubate um, snake envenomation patients. Mm -hmm. um, and then breathing. So if you are having pulmonary edema from that capillary bed breakdown that we were talking about, you may have to have some supplemental oxygen. Okay. If it's bad, people may have to be put on BiPAP or intubated ultimately if things get really bad. But again, that's pretty rare for things to progress so far. Mm -hmm. And then circulation, we want to treat hypotension with IV fluids. Um, we may have to give some blood if people have clinically significant coagulopathy. Um, and then most importantly, after I make sure that everyone is stabilized from an ABC standpoint, is to get on the phone and order the antivenom because that is going to be the one true treatment for this. Are there any other short-term issues you're, you're sort of worried about with initial presentation? Yeah, you know, I think <clears throat> after you get patients stabilized from an ABC standpoint, you want to think about the four main causes of death from snake, point, snake bite envenomations, and that's cardiovascular collapse, uh, ARDS, hemorrhagic shock. Um, so looking out for signs of those things to develop over the next minutes to even hours um, before you give the antivenom or even after you give the antivenom just to make sure patients are responding to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, the way that the snake bite venom works particularly is kind of similar to the way that DIC would work. Okay. So actually, the, the term for it is VICC, or venom-induced consumptive coagulopathies, okay. which is very similar to DIC in that it causes the aggregation of platelet products and clotting um, components, so you create microthrombi throughout your vascular system. And then without going into too much detail, this causes clots everywhere, but in the absence of clotting factors in the rest of your blood, you can have bleeding from other places. So this could lead to really bad blood loss, um, fluid losses, et cetera. Okay. And it can, can really spiral out of control if the patient goes uh, that far down the line. What about any long-term concerns or sort of late-stage late, uh, late problems in management that you need to consider? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, definitely you want to keep track of the wound itself. Uh -huh. You want to mark the edges of the swelling, of the bruising, of the bite, and um, kind of uh, see how that's progressing along both before and after you've given the antivenom. Normally you should be doing this every... 15 minutes or so. Okay. Um, you could also measure the circumference of the limb to make sure that's not um, expanding uh, significantly. Check the patient's pain levels. You want to look out for signs of compartment syndrome. Mm -hmm. And compartment syndrome is very rare in snake bites. And if there is any sort of element of early compartment syndrome or swelling of the limb, normally this will actually be reversed with the antivenom. Okay. Um, but in very rare, rare cases, you know, it has um, led to requiring the surgical team to help with fasciotomies. Mm -hmm. But again, the antivenom may, may be able to reverse early compartment syndrome. Okay. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about antivenin. Um, does everyone who's bitten receive antivenin, or is there a procedure for determining who's appropriate versus not appropriate? Mm -hmm. So you want to have, you know, you always suspect the worst for everything uh -huh. and be prepared for the worst, but you can just observe patients for a while and see if they're actually actually developing signs of envenomation. So if a patient comes in, they're bit by some sort of snake, you mm -hmm. want to watch the wound, and like we were talking about, mark the wound edges every 15 minutes, see if it's actually developing any swelling or bruising. Mm -hmm. If there's no swelling or bruising and you've observed that patient for eight hours, it's safe to assume that that was a dry bite, and then mm -hmm. that patient can just go home. Okay. But if there's any significant swelling or bruising around the bite site, if they have any systemic symptoms at all, like the vomiting, the lightheadedness, the vital sign abnormalities, like low blood pressure, 
fast heart rate, those are all things that would indicate that they've actually received some venom, and you should just go ahead and start the antivenom at that time. I know it's pretty complicated, but <laughs> briefly, how does antivenom work? Sure. So, yeah. yeah, it is complicated. I'll try not to go into too much detail. <laughs> so, the antivenom was first available back in 1954, okay. and this was an immunoglobulin G. It was horse-derived. It brought the mortality down from 25% with pit viper envenomations down to 0.5%, which has been great, and it kind of remains around there today. Um, and the initial antivenom was a little bit heavy, so it had slower absorption and a smaller volume of distribution. It also had an FC segment, which could cause some hypersensitivity reaction in patients or serum sickness. Mm. So there's always that risk with giving it. Now we use an antivenom called Crofab, which was uh, put on the market in 2000. This one is a little bit smaller than the original antivenom. It's still uh, an immune antigen binding fragment, so it's part of that immunoglobulin, but it doesn't have the FC segment, so it causes less hypersensitivity, less kind of allergic reactions to the antivenom mm -hmm. itself. Um, and the way that it works is the these binding sites actually are, are designed to bind the venom. So they build these little complexes in mm -hmm. your blood, and they will still circulate around, but the venom cannot act on you know components of the blood or the cell membrane or cell surface receptors. Okay. So it essentially kind of keeps the venom at bay mm -hmm. um, while your body is removing those complexes, and those are renally excreted. Okay. The, the half-life um, in, in Crofab is 12 to 24 hours after okay. you get it. I've heard news stories that it's really, really expensive. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the most um, kind of recent numbers I could find on this at wholesale price um, are a, one vial of Crofab costs $3,198. And then, Ooh. yeah, so this yeah. is the reported wholesale price. Again, it's kind of hard to find um, exact pricing online. Right. But uh, if you think about that just being the one singular vial, you can imagine how much of a markup that would be for right. patients um, with the hospital costs on top of that, transportation costs, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, and then one patient I was reading about in Indiana Hospital last summer, they were charged $68,000 for four vials of Crofab. Oh my gosh, these <laughs> markup. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And these included, you know, like things that uh, pertained to receiving the Crofab, like administration of costs, right. transportation costs of the Crofab. They actually had to call this in from a neighboring hospital. Okay. Um, but it didn't include any other part of their hospital bill. So that was just the cost of administering the Crofab Alone. itself. Wow. Yeah. And so the dosing of Crofab also, um, it you have to receive at least 10 vials uh, per patient. That's the minimum amount of treatment. So okay. essentially the first dose is six vials at a time mm -hmm. for most envenomations, unless the patient has significant um, hemorrhagic shock, airway involvement, unless they're um, really critically ill, then you may want to start with eight to 12 vials. But most of the time you can start with six vials. Okay. And you want to recheck the patient in about an hour and make sure that they've reached, quote, initial control, which means that they don't have any spreading of the local effects, so no spreading of their bruising or swelling. They've had improvement in their in their laboratory values. The main thing you're looking for is thrombocytopenia and hypofibrinogenemia. So you want <laughs> yeah, that's a big word. So you want to check their platelets and their fibrinogen levels okay. are the kind of two main things we're looking for here in addition to other um, coagulation path coagulation panel uh, findings of course. Okay. Um, so and then resolution of their systemic symptoms, so no more vomiting, um, improvement in their tachycardia, mm -hmm. just ugh, 
the, hopefully they're feeling better after an hour. So if you've met all of those criteria, then you've reached your initial control and you don't have to redose the initial six vials. If you haven't reached that initial control, then you have to redose the initial six to 12 vials every hour wow. um, until you do reach initial control. So okay. most, of, most of the time patients get by with either the first dose of six or a second dose of six, mm -hmm. and then they can move on to the maintenance dosing, which is two vials every six hours for three doses. So that's another six collective vials of Crofab over that time. So again, the minimum dose needed to treat a patient is 10 vials, but sometimes patients can require much, much more than this, mm. um, kind of depending on the severity of the bite, where it was located on their body, and how much venom they actually received from the snake. Wow. And you mentioned, too, that some of the cost actually had to do with flying that, that, um, that crofab to the hospital. So do all, hospital, do all hospitals have a supply on hand? Yeah, so the supply really matches the demand, at least in the Portland area, which is to say that um, there can be anywhere from zero to two, to two vials at any Portland area hospital at one time. And I'm, I'm thinking more community hospitals when I say this. The tertiary centers like OHSU and Emanuel, they hopefully would have a little bit more than that. The Oregon Poison Control Center, they encourage all hospitals even those in non-endemic areas like Portland and places west of the Cascades to have at least 10 vials on hand, which would be, again, enough to treat one patient. Mm -hmm. um, but they recommend that endemic hospitals, such as those east of the Cascades, like in Bend, um, that they have at least 20 vials on hand. Okay. Um, and I actually called around before we did this uh, podcast to several pharmacists in the area. Uh -huh. And, you know, they said that uh, they either had zero or they thought that the neighboring hospital maybe had two. Might have some. Yeah, and this is because, you know, we don't have high demand for it here in Portland. The shelf life of Crofab is about three years. So mm -hmm. even if, you know, the, the local pharmacies had the best intentions and they initially had their 10 vials, they they expire pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so. Are there drawbacks to using the antivenom for patients at all? There is is not really any drawbacks. Um, you know, as, as we said, the patients may have um, an allergy to the antivenom, but okay. this is rare, and really the antivenom is their best chance at survival. Right. So, you know, if, you're, if you could risk an allergy versus a 25% chance of death, I think you'd choose to have the yeah. allergy. So there, it's really not considered to have any major drawbacks at all. But with Crofab in particular, there's some concern that even patients that receive the antivenom, 53% of them may develop some sort of late or recurrent or persistent coagulopathy okay. 2 to 14 days after the bite. And this can be for many different reasons or is hypothesized to be for many different reasons. And it could be delayed venom absorption from the bite side. Perhaps you have that like depot of venom that's sitting there and then slowly gets absorbed into your body over time. Maybe there's a pharmacokinetic mismatch between the fab and the venom. So the half-life of Crofab is about 12 to 24 hours again, but the venom effects can actually last up to one week. Uh -huh. So if the Crofab gets renally filtered out of your system or renally excreted, maybe you still have some venom circulating around. Perhaps the fab and the venom complexes in your blood disassociate over time, and then the venom can be active again. Um, there's, there's several different ways that this, this might affect people. So delayed coagulopathy has been reported in the literature as low fibrinogen, low platelets, but there's been some studies in more recent years to actually determine whether or not this even matters. Mm -hmm. You know, are, are these low laboratory numbers something you actually need to be worried about? Worried about? Yeah. Um, yeah, so looking at, you know, more recent studies in the 
uh, later 2000s, there's been about 19 studies of about 1,000 patients all being bit by rattlesnakes, and they evaluated for bleeding. The most common type of bleeding was from patients' gums, in their urine, or in their stool. Mm -hmm. And then they evaluated if that bleeding was clinically significant. So basically looking at hemodynamic instability, if they had a hemoglobin drop of greater than 3 grams per deciliter or hematocrit greater than 8 grams per deciliter, or they required any sort of um, red blood cell transfusion. So their conclusion with that study is that even though about 50% of patients may have laboratory abnormalities, that clinically significant late bleeding is actually pretty rare oh. and something that normally we won't have to worry about. So we've been talking a lot about management in the United States, but I know that snake bites are a really big issue worldwide. And I know the WHO categorized snake envenomation as a category A of neglected tropical diseases in 2017. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, snake envenomations internationally just beyond the United States? Yes, yeah, so the main uh, snake envenomations that we were just talking about were pit vipers, which are overwhelmingly uh, the most common in the U.S., less so the elapids or coral snakes, which make up about 5% of those envenomations in the U.S. But as you can imagine, there are so many different types of envenomous snakes throughout the world. Um, and the snake bites, at least which are estimated to happen by the World Health Organization, are around 5 million globally per year. And these can result in about 2.7 million envenomations and anywhere from 80,000 to 140,000 reported deaths worldwide from snake envenomations alone. And even of those patients that you know, don't have such a terrible outcome, you can still have significant local tissue injury and uh, upwards of 400,000 amputations are reported per year in developing countries because people can't access healthcare, they can't access the antivenom early enough to maybe help save the limb, although maybe they can't save life. Um, and so this creates a big problem. So in 2017, as you said, this was really uh, brought to the attention and added to the neglected tropical diseases list. And snake antivenom, or at least um, some of the major antivenoms, are actually on the World Health Organization Essential Medication List. And this is a living document which has been around since 1977 and is updated every couple years. And this document attempts to describe medications which the World Health Organization believes that people should have access to at all times and should have affordable access excuse me, affordable access to at all times. So now the question kind of remains, which antivenoms should be on there? Um, how are we going to subsidize these antivenoms? And who, who's, who are going to produce these antivenoms as well? Even um, coral snake antivenom now has uh, stopped being produced because the demand is so small. Wow. Um, so thank you so much for talking with us about snake bites here in the United States and overseas. And just for our listeners, I was wondering if you could sum up just a couple takeaways about what to do in that in the moment, as you talked about, and maybe if you're on the other side of things in the ED um, while we're on clinical rotations or when we're out in practice. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So if you're in the field and you get bit, you want to, well, first off, if you're by yourself, just get out of there. Don't worry about wrapping your leg meticulously or anything like that. Just get to safety, try and get help, use your cell phone, try and call anybody that you can. Um, if you're with friends, have them wrap your extremity have them carry you out of there if they can safely, but just try and get somewhere where you can get the antivenom because that is going to be the ultimate treatment. And then for physicians or med students, residents, anyone that's going to be taking care of these patients, the things you want to remember about the venom particularly are that pit viper venom, which is the main thing you want to watch out for, is cytotoxic and hemotoxic. So you're going to be looking for um, bleeding issues like you would see in DIC, um, hypotension, that would need volume replacement, 
an ARDS or fluid in the lungs, so you may need to use BiPAP or any sort of um, uh, supplemental O2 with that. And then less commonly with pit vipers and definitely common with coral snake envenomations is neurotoxicity, so you want to look out for um, fasciculations, diaphragmatic uh, paralysis, which may lead to intubation, that sort of thing. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Yeah, you're welcome. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me in here. This was great. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks again so much for listening, and thanks again to Dr. Arnold for talking with me today. Thank you.